Well, before we begin this morning in God's Word, I just, if I may, take a point of personal privilege and thank all of you who have blessed us this week and helping us to get moved into our home in Percival and uh, the crew that came down on Friday, drove four hours, loaded us up and drove four hours back up here. Then all of you on Saturday morning who set up our house and made our beds and filled our refrigerators. It's just a massive blessing to us. I didn't appreciate the vandalism on my refrigerator, however, um, I think uh, I need to talk to you afterwards, perhaps, but um, there's no Carolina um, emblems in my house, so, um, but everybody besides uh, that individual, I love you and I thank you, and um, you certainly blessed us mightily, so praise the Lord for that. This morning, I would like, if God is willing, to speak to you from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Romans 5 and verse 6. Hear now the word of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Will you please pray with me? Father in heaven, I'm excited to be here this morning with my brothers and sisters that we may gather together simply because we love you. We adore you, we long, our hearts long to worship you. There's something in us that we trust you have placed within us that compels us to gather that we may sing to you and call out to you and hear from you in your word. And yet we believe from your word that we love you because you first loved us. And so it brings us great joy this morning to consider your love for us. I ask you to help us. Will you please come and serve us this morning, that you may take your word and implant it deep within our hearts, that we may be changed into the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1861, a wild gambler and drinker named Harry Morehouse rushed into a revival meeting in Manchester, England, looking for a fight. Instead, he was found by Christ and receive salvation. Six years later, the famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody was preaching in Dublin with this same man, Morehouse, came up and told Moody he would like to come to America and preach for him. Moody didn't know Morehouse at all. He looked to be about 17 to Moody, had no idea what his theology was or if he could preach, and so he simply brushed him off. But after Moody returned to Chicago, he got a letter from Morehouse stating he had landed in New York and he was coming to Chicago to preach. Moody wrote him a cold and short reply hoping to dissuade this eager young man. A few days later, Moody got a second letter saying that Morehouse will be in Chicago the next Thursday. He didn't know what to do with him. And so he told his leadership in his church, there's a man coming from England who wants to preach. I'm going to be gone Thursday and Friday. If you let him preach those days, I'll be back on Saturday and take him off your hands. 
On Saturday, Moody returned and asked his wife how the young Englishman had gotten along. Did, did the people like him? And she said, yes, he was very well received. Did you like him? He asked. Very much. And I think I, you will like him too, she responded. But he preaches a little different than you do. How is that? Well, he tells sinners that God loves them. Well, he's wrong, Moody replied. Moody went to hear Morehouse that night, determined beforehand that he would not like him. But as Morehouse preached again on God's great love for sinners, Moody's heart began to thaw and the tears began to flow. His life was changed that night. In fact, for seven nights, Morehouse preached to a crowded church simply on this theme, God's love for sinners. That final night, Morehouse concluded his revival meeting saying, My friends, for a whole week, I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor and stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell you how much the Father loves the world, all he could say would be that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life those sermons changed Moody's life forever in fact he would write I have never forgotten those nights I have preached a different gospel since I thought what we could do this morning if it's okay with you is that we could consider God's love for sinners that he loves us. We have been, of course, um, over now for three weeks considering the majesty of salvation from Romans chapter 5. And we've explored, first of all, that we've been justified by faith. You see that in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that is, we've been declared righteous by God. Because of that, we have gained great blessings. Paul notes four of them that we've already considered. We have peace with God, reading on in verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in grace, in other words. Thirdly, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And fourthly, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame. We consider we have peace with God. We stand in God's grace. We hope in God's glory and we rejoice in our sufferings. This morning, let us consider that we, because we've been justified, know that God loves us. And even in saying that, there's somewhat of a, a hesitancy in me because we use this word love so loosely in our culture. We say things like, I love my wife and I love Big Macs or I love, uh, I love the church and I love Sunday afternoon naps or I love Jesus Christ and double coupons. And we just use these terms and anything that we have affection for, anything there's fondness in our heart, we attribute love to it. And so when I say to you that God loves you, my fear is that you're going to say, well, of course, and shrug your shoulders. And so this morning, I don't want to simply just consider that God loves you. I want to, if we can, explore the depth of that love plunge into the deepness of the love of God for you. In fact, I believe there are probably two ways in which we can consider the depth of love. One way we can do so is by considering the costliness of the gift. The costliness of the gift. How much trouble, how much cost, how much inconvenience does the act of love bring upon the one who gives his love? For instance, I could pick my wife a dandelion or I could give her my kidney. 
Both are perhaps aspects of love, but one is a much greater act of love. I believe the greater the sacrifice, the greater the love. You could, you could love me with something that may cost you $5 and that would be one degree of love. Or you could love me by coming down 200 miles and packing up my furniture and taking it and unloading it into my house. That would be another act of love. Or you can give your life for me and there would be another degree of love. And so I think we can consider the costliness of the gift in order to understand the depth of the love. But there's another way that we can consider the depth of love. And that's the worthiness of the recipient. For instance, I could bail my wife out of jail. Or I could bail my enemy out of jail. And I believe that though both are aspects of love, the greatness of the love is shown if we're actually willing to give it to those who do not deserve it. Those who actually hate us in return. That's the kind of love that amazes us, isn't it? When you receive love from someone that you've hurt, does that not amaze you in the depth of that love? And so I believe that the the greater the cost and the less that it's deserved, the greater the love seems to be. I think this will be good for us to consider as we look through these texts. Maybe it will guide our study of them. First of all, I'd like to consider this morning the costliness of the gift. What is it that he did in order to love us? Secondly, we can consider the worthiness of the recipient. What were we when he loved us? And lastly, we'll consider what this means. And as we do, my hope for you, my my goal this morning is not simply to provide you with a set of information about the depth of God's love for that to actually change your life. That's my hope. Friends, uh, we know, as we saw last week, that right now as you sit in these church pews on February 10th this morning, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you right now. God's Spirit is in you. And he has a ministry in your life, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 that we saw last week, that his love is to be poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so my hope this morning, as we consider the objective evidence of God's love, that the Spirit of God would take that and pour it into your life, that you may experience and know and delight in the love of God. So I believe you and I would probably do well even to, to pray a silent prayer in this moment as we begin, that God would pour out his love into our hearts as we consider his word. So let's first consider the costliness of that gift. What is it that he did? We see in verse 6, rather clearly, he died for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's very clear what he did in order to love us was that Jesus died for us. In fact, in these three, these three verses, we have four sentences, all of them in the Greek end with the verb to die. This is the repeated refrain that Paul is, is sounding that Jesus has died for us. He did not simply sacrifice his time, his wealth, his freedom, his convenience, his afternoon. He didn't even give us seven years of labor. He did not simply offer us a helping hand or sage advice or useful direction or profound teaching. He died for us. That's the cost of the gift of God's love for you. In fact, we not only see the cost for Jesus, we see the cost to the Father as well, if you note in verse 10 of Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son... 
So who is this Christ that died for you? Well, it is the Son of God. It is not a prophet or a priest or a king. He is simply not an angel or a follower or a servant of his. He is his Son, and his Son died for us. And so know that the love of God for you is not simply a fondness in his heart towards you. It's not simply an attraction towards you. It is not simply a warm feeling when he thinks about you. It has moved him to act in the most remarkable act that has ever occurred upon this earth, the death of the Son of God. And so let's think about this for a moment. Who is this Son of God who died for us? Let's, let's be aware, let's just affirm, as we already know, that, that this is not simply a man who wasted his life and tried to redeem it at the end through some great sacrifice. He wasn't a gambler or a drunk or a thief or a murderer or a felon who tried to atone for his past mistakes by giving himself up for us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that he was tempted as we are yet without sin. In 1 Peter 2 it says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, in him there was no sin. In other words, the one who died for us was the best life that ever lived. That's what was given for us. He never had an impure thought, a greedy instinct, a covetous desire, an anxious concern, an idolatrous attraction, an envious inclination, and he is the one who died for us. He never had a prideful remark, a quick-tempered word, a backbiting comment, a lying tongue, a gluttonous indulgent, a slothful moment, and he is the one who died for us. He never dishonored his parents, manipulated his brothers, deceived his neighbors. He was always kind and compassionate, humble and meek, holy and just, tough and tender, selfless and strong. He was the embodiment of wisdom and righteousness and grace, and he is the one who died for us. He stood up to the prideful. He warned his enemies of judgment. He proclaimed the kingdom of heaven and pointed all men to a holy and forgiving God. He is the only person of the billions who have walked upon this earth, who always trusted his father, never feared man, and who loved God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul all the time and loved his neighbor as himself. And he is the one who died for us. He always had time to care for the needy, teach the earnest, instruct his followers, and pray to the father. And he is the one who died for us. He offered his compassion to the poor, his love for the lonely, his forgiveness to the sinful, his tears for the mourning, his grace for the prostitutes, his love for the tax collectors, and his mercy to a thief and traitor dying on the cross. And he is the one who died for us. He welcomed the elderly. He esteemed the children. He elevated women. He honored the enslaved. He sought after Gentiles. He accepted the outcast, the reject, the isolated, the nobody. And he is the one who died for for us. He healed the sick. He liberated the demonized. He gave sight to the blind, gave strength to the lame, gave words to the mute, touched the leper, made him whole, sent him back to his family. He straightened a woman's back. He stretched out a man's hand. He sent away a woman's flow of blood. And he is the one who died for us. He comforted a widow's heart by giving her son back from the dead. He loved his friends by calling their brother to come forth from the tomb. And he changed the daddy's life forever as he spoke to the of his little girl, Talitha Kum, little girl rise, and the dead girl got up and crawled into her daddy's lap, and he is the one who died for us. He walked on water, calmed the storm, fed the thousands, did battle with the devil, and won. It is of him whom the father said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. He is the one who left the adoring worship of angels in heaven for the hateful scorn of men, and friends, he is the one who died for us. He was abandoned 
abandoned by his disciples, betrayed by his followers, rejected by his friend, arrested without cause, struck without retaliation, tried without evidence. He was spit upon and mocked, taunted and tortured, flogged and paraded through a screaming mob to the top of the hill where he is stripped naked and his hands and feet were nailed to a cross and yet he had only pity for his enemies as he prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and he is the one who died for us. It is the best life that has ever been lived. The best. No one even approaches it. And he gave himself up for you and me. In fact, he did this and 10,000 times more. You see this in Romans 5.8? Christ died for us. He gave himself up for us. There is no more costly gift. There is no higher price to be paid. He alone is priceless. And he is the one who died for us. And so, friends, know the love of your God in heaven by the costliness of his loving gift and the value of the price he paid for you. His son died for us. I'm afraid some may consider this and start to think, well, if that's what he would give up for me, I must be something special. And so secondly, if we can, let us consider the worthiness of the recipient. What were we when God chose to love us? Well, Paul has four descriptions for us in these three verses. You notice verse 6, it says, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Some translations say we were helpless or we were powerless. And of course, this is not referring to a physical power, but a moral weakness, a moral helplessness that we cannot rescue ourselves from our sin or his wrath. We were weak. We were sickly. We were spiritually bedridden, unable to contribute anything to our salvation except the sin from which we must be saved. And it is for this, the weak, that Christ, that God sacrificed his son. But that's not all we were. Notice verse 8, as we've already seen, I trust a couple times now, and you picked up, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners. This captures who we were. This captures our nature. We were sinners by nature and action. Friends, we're not simply people who sometimes sin. We are people who are characterized by sin. And just be clear, let's just understand what sin is. Sin is not necessarily immorality. It's not necessarily wickedness or criminal behavior. I mean, the Bible, I believe, teaches us that when, he, when the Bible calls us sinners or people sinners, it's not necessarily saying that we're wicked. It could be those things, but it could be none of those things and still be sin. I mean, a failure to thank God. A failure to worship him with his people is sin, and we wouldn't necessarily call that immorality. And so sin, as the Bible defines in 1 John 3, 4, is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is a declaration to God, I will not have you as my God. I will not have you as my lawgiver. I will go my own way. I will make my own laws. In its very nature, it is rebellion. And as sinners, we we declare to God, "I, I don't want any part of you. I'm going to do what I want. That's what sin is. And we all have that inclination in us. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, may I tell you, 
with great love in my heart and fear for your soul that you are a sinner. And it's not that I have some deep personal insight into who you are. It's just what the Bible tells me, tells me what the human nature is. We all have this deep, insidious tendency to reject God and his own way. We all have this. And I understand this is bad news in some sense to be, to be called a sinner. It's, it's bad news like being told you have cancer is bad news. It's not the news you want, but it sure is important to receive. It's certainly the news that, that you want to receive if it's true. But here's the good news I have for you. Is that there's a cure to this spiritual cancer. It's called belief. It's called re- repentance. It's called surrendering. The Bible says, friend, if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the de- grave, you will be saved. You can be cured from your sin disease today. This very day. Completely cured. In fact, the amazing thing is that the cure for your sin disease, for your sin cancer, has some side effects. And the side effects aren't pain and suffering, but they're rather happiness and depth and joy and abundance of life. God will cure you today if you will simply bow your knee to him as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sin. You see, God has sacrificed his son for sinners but that's not all we were when God chose to love us. Note verse 10, if we could just jump down there for a moment, when it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were rebels. We had hostility towards him, enmity towards God. There was a war going on between us and God. And by the way, as we've already established a couple of weeks ago, the hostility simply wasn't on our side towards God, but it was actually God towards us. We see this very clearly in verse 9 when he writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? God's wrath is his holy hatred towards sin. And so not only were we in wicked opposition to God, but God was in holy opposition to us. And it's for us his enemies that God sacrificed his son while we were weak while we were sinners while we were enemies people like this for which Christ has died in fact there's one more bonus description of us in case uh, you're not beat down enough already you notice verse 6 for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly we were irreverent We had no fear of God, no worship of God, no respect or deference or awe of God. We were godless while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were ungodly. Christ died for us. We talked about in Sunday school this morning that it would have been right and good for God to send us to hell. That would have been a good thing for him to do. We deserve divine judgment, not divine sacrifice. And I know, friends, when I say this, I I risk alienating you. I risk upsetting some of you. I risk destroying some of your self-esteem. And I trust that no one here this morning woke up and said, I really hope the new preacher tells me how bad I am. I really just want him to lay in and just kind of let me know how wicked and evil my nature is. And many preachers today, some of them quite famous, would counsel me to not say anything unpleasant about human nature. They they would suggest that, listen, people feel bad enough about themselves already. They don't need to come to church and be told that they're sinful. 
that they were at one time God's enemies. And I would just simply, if you will, like to humbly disagree. In fact, I think it is very helpful for your soul to review the type of person you are when God decided to love you and pour out his love for you. In fact, I think there are at least three benefits for you to regularly consider your own sinful nature. The first one, I believe that we ought to consider our sin in order to know the greatness of God's love. Friends, until we appreciate the depth of sin from which we need to be rescued, the extent of our opposition from which we need to be freed, we won't understand his love. It'd be like trying to appreciate the skill of a surgeon. Well, in order to do that, you need to know how desperate your situation was. You will never understand the greatness of God's love until you feel the unworthiness the, un- the unlovableness of your nature. In fact, I think that's what verse 7 is getting at. He says, for while scarcely, uh, excuse me, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to die. You see what Paul is doing? He's talking about the pinnacle of human love. What is the best that human love could do? Well, at the best, it probably won't die for a righteous person, maybe someone who's who's cold and just and principled, but for a good person, someone who's warm and kind, Maybe, maybe, just maybe, someone might be willing to die. It's rare. This is why we call them heroes. We, we write about them. Their stories uh, amaze us. When someone dies for a spouse or a child or runs into a burning building in Manhattan, risking his own life to save others. This is the height of human love. But notice the contrast in verse 8. But... God shows his love for us in this. While we were not good, not righteous, not any of those things, Christ died for sinners. And so, friends, if you want to understand the depth of God's love, you need to understand your sinfulness. You ever wonder why uh, when Jesus was was resurrected, he still wore his scars? I always found that interesting. That he would go and appear on that Easter afternoon to the apostles and he would show them his scars. And, and even a week later, he had Thomas put his finger in his side. Evidently, the hole is still there. I, I trust when you and I receive our glorified bodies, we won't, we won't wear our scars, but it seems that Christ does. And even in the book of Revelation, we still continually see him as the lamb who was slain. He wears his scars and I trust he shall for eternity. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but let me just speculate for a moment. I believe for forever Christ's scars will be upon his body that we may be forever reminded how it is we got to heaven. Because friends, after a billion years of living in sinless perfection, you may begin to think, wow, I'm pretty good. I deserve to be here. But every time you go and worship your risen Lord and Savior and there his scars remain upon his body, it is a reminder not simply of his love, but of our sinfulness. We will be forever reminded of our sinfulness, not to fill us with guilt and shame so that we can rejoice in the greatness of his love for us for all eternity. Do not think we will forget the cross in heaven shall be the center of our worship forever. I believe you need to consider your sin in order to know the greatness of God's love. But I also believe that you ought to consider your sinfulness in order to develop a strong assurance of salvation. I believe understanding your sinfulness will actually strengthen your assurance of salvation because if we were helpless sinners, enemies and godly, then salvation is not in any way due to you. Is not due to your goodness. And I find that very reassuring. Christian, understand, you are saved not because you deserved it or caused it 
or initiated it. God didn't wait for some moral improvement for you to undertake before he would decide to love you and send his son. You took no steps towards him, no honest pleas for mercy, no stirring in your heart for worship, no love for him in your soul. His love is simply not a response to your goodness, but his. And in this way, his love is much different than ours. In fact, I appreciate so much what D.A. Carson, the great theologian, writes in differentiating between God's love and ours. He says, picture Susan and Charles walking down a beach, hand in hand. They have kicked off their shoes and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. Carson writes, what does he mean? If we assume some decency in him, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile paralyzes me from 50 yards, your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. He goes on saying what he most certainly does not mean is, Susan, in spite of the fact that your nose is so large it belongs in cartoons, your hair is so greasy it can lubricate a truck, your knees are so bony, a camel looks elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun look sweet. But Susan, I love you. So now God comes through his word and says, I love you. What does he mean? Does he mean something like, you mean everything to me? I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything transfixes, about you transfixes me. I love you. No, I don't think so. When he says he loves us, does not God rather mean something like this? Listen, morally speaking, your huge nose and your greasy hair, your disjointed knees and terribly selfish personality... Your sinfulness makes you disgustingly ugly to me. But I love you. Not because you are attractive, but because I have chosen to love you. While we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we were ungodly, God loved us. And I believe, friends, this truth is essential for your assurance of salvation. Because if you think God's love is dependent upon some lovable characteristic about in you, if you think you deserve to be loved, you will never be secure in God's love. Because you will be afraid you will do something to lessen the cause for God to love you. You, you, you will fear that you will do something unloving. And you will. You will do so this afternoon. But, but friends, if you believe that God loves you, even though you're not deserving that he loves you because he has chosen to love you, you may be assured of his love forever because there's never something you can do to lose his love because there's never something you did in the first place to deserve it. And this is why the promise is true that because he loves the weak and the sinful and the enemies and the ungodly, we can be sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. And if I may add, nor your unlovable action, your rebellious words, your sinful thoughts will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, I suggest you ought to consider your sin to be assured 
of God's love for you. Well, the last benefit I believe in considering our sinfulness is not only does it help us understand God's love for us, but I believe it grows our love for him. And if we may just turn to Luke chapter 7, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible where Jesus very much clearly shows us how we can grow our love for him. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. We see here, the Bible say, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. The Pharisee's name, by the way, is Simon. We'll find out later in the story. He's a very religious, upright man. As a Pharisee, he kept the law, he tithed his income, he fasted twice a week, and he prayed three times a day. He was holding a dinner party, invited this young upstart rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth to his party, perhaps to check him out. The party would have taken place in an inner courtyard and a low table surrounded by cushions where they would actually lie down on their left side with their feet extended away from the table. We also know culturally that these parties were kind of like block parties. The doors would be left open and people could come and go as they pleased. Though they couldn't participate in the feast, they could sit along the wall and listen to the conversation. Well, there was a somewhat startling guest, as we see in verse 37 of Luke chapter 7, and behold, right? Luke says, look out a woman of the city. And when he says a woman of the city, he's not saying she's urban. Right? Hey, she's a prostitute. A very unlikely guest in a place like this. In fact, if you read on in verse 37, we see Luke describes her who was a sinner. In fact, not only does Luke know that she's a sinner, so did everyone. If you look down in verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So just not a private sinner, a notorious sinner, one who everyone knew. And I imagine her walking into this place, eyebrows were probably raised. People were rather nudged, weren't they? And there was some silent conversation, some whispers, perhaps some muffled laughters as they cast a gaze towards her eyes. It was common, as I said, for guests to arrive, but no one expected her. This perverted woman walks into a religious man's house full of men, I trust, nervous, ashamed, eyes cast downward, perhaps even trembling, for everyone knew her. What was she there to do? Well, Luke tells us as we read on in verse 37, when he says, uh, when she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She come to anoint Jesus and perhaps, by the way, repent of her trade because she would have used this perfume in, in her prostitution. And so she's giving it up for Christ. She evidently has had a previous encounter with Jesus in which she is now filled with gratitude and she wants to come and to anoint him. And so she takes this expensive alabaster jar of perfume, but I'm afraid things did not go as planned for her. As I trust, she wanted to slip in, anoint him, and slip out and be on her way. But as this notorious sinner bent over her Lord's feet, she could not contain herself. And the tears began to flow as we read in verse 38. And standing behind at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. I trust she told herself not to cry. But as she stood there, at his feet as she approached him, everything went wrong. 
She became overcome with emotion. She who lived with intense guilt for perhaps her entire adult life, it's all gone. The crushing burden of guilt has all been lifted, and now she's overwhelmed by grace, and she begins to cry, and the snot begins to flow, and she's crying and all over Jesus' feet. It's pouring all down on his feet. Of course, she had no towel in which to clean them, so she did the unthinkable. She let down her hair and began to clean his feet with her hair, which in that culture would have been scandalous. A woman would not let down her hair except in private before her husband. Some draw equivalent with a woman bearing her chest to a woman letting down her hair. The Talmud said, if a woman, your wife lets down her hair in public, that is grounds for divorce. And here's this woman who could care less about the cultural mandates. She's going to clean her Lord's feet and she lets down her hair and begins to wipe them. The guests, I trust, were stunned, shocked, scandalous event. Not only does she wipe his feet dry, she anoints them with oil, this great sacrifice, the most precious thing she owned. She gave it freely and lavishly for her Lord. As the Roma then filled the courtyard, she began to kiss his feet. And not just once, the Greek tense tells us it's a continuous tense. Over and over and over, she kisses his feet. She is simply a self-forgetful mess. Tears, snot, stringy hair, kissing his feet in front of all these scowling men. And no one said a word. Up to this point, we read in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Well, Jesus hears Simon's muttering to himself. And based upon this, he begins to teach a lesson. He said, there are two debtors. One owns 500 denarii. One owns 50 denarii. Both are unable to pay. The man forgives them both their debt. The question then is proposed to Simon in verse 42 by Jesus. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which Now, which of them will love him more? Who's going to love him more? The one forgiven little or the one forgiven much? Simon answers in verse 43, the one, I suppose, for whom he counseled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many... You notice Christ doesn't say, stop calling her a sinner. Stop it. No, he doesn't deny that she's a sinner. In fact, he piles on, doesn't he? Not only is she a sinner, there are many sins. Her sins, which are many, are what? Are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who's forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven forgiven. Friends, you want to love much? You want to love God much? Consider your sinfulness. Consider that which you have been saved from. Charles Spurgeon, I believe, rightly puts it, you've got to stand before God, convicted and condemned, with a rope around your neck, so that you will weep for joy when God, at the right time, sends Christ into your life as your Savior. You see what we were You see, the worthiness of the recipients, we were weak and ungodly, we were sinful, and we were his enemies. 
So what does this mean? Quickly as we end our this morning. Well, it simply means as we've established over and over again, God loves you, friends. I don't care who you are this morning. God loves you. I don't care what you've done. God loves you. And by the way, he loves you today. And I want to be very clear about this because verse 8, I believe, drives us home back in Romans chapter 5 when he says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He proves his love for us in this. He demonstrates his love for us in this. He does not say he demonstrated. He does not say he showed his love for you 2,000 years ago, but he shows you today that he loves you because of what he did for you 2,000 years ago. And you need to understand this, that God loves you today because so many people will look at the circumstances in your life in order to measure the depth of God's love for them. If things are going well, they say, well, God must love me. If things turn bad, they begin to doubt his love. But friends, let me tell you, the Bible never, never, never promises you ease in this life. In fact, Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. His love is never intended to be shown to you through the circumstances in your life today. His love is intended to be seen by you, cherished by you, and rejoiced by you through what he did 2,000 years ago when he put his son on the cross for you and me sinners. And so if you want to understand God's love, you want to understand his love for you today, do not look at your bank account. Do not look at your doctor's report. Do not look at, at the condition of, of, your, of your family or your job, but look at Calvary. Look at the cross. For there you cannot deny the love of God for you. He has shown you it there. Christ has died for you. Therefore, who shall separate you from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You know, so Paul's assuming is that some of us are going to encounter these hard things. But can they separate you from the love of God? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so I suggest to you, if you just want a point of application as we end our time this morning, that you ought to focus daily on the cross. You ought to begin your day considering what God has done for you. Not what he's doing to you today or bringing you through today simply, but consider what he has done for you 2,000 years ago when he put Jesus on Calvary's cross. For it's there you'll understand his love. And pray that the Holy Spirit would pour that into your heart, that you may rejoice in it and delight in it. But let me give you a second point of application if I can. Not only should you consider the love of God for you today, I think you should share the love of God today as well. In fact, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 6, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil you want to be like your father you want to be like the sons of the most high god then you and i ought to love our enemies as christ loved us when we were his christian i tell you this morning you are loved by god and I can think of no better news to bring you. God loves you. And he has shown you, and I think as great as detail as he possibly can. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, as I've already said, that God loves you too. 
And he will invite you into his family. He will forgive you of all your sin. He will adopt you as his son and daughter if you will simply call out to him. If you will lay down your arms of rebellion. Bow your knee to him as your Lord and King. Placing your faith in a crucified and risen Savior. In a moment, we're going to sing a song and I'm going to be down front. I certainly would have a love to have an opportunity to pray with you, to talk with you, to, to counsel you through what God perhaps may be doing in your life even this moment. Years ago, the great Swiss theologian, Dr. Karl Barth, was visiting America. And someone asked him in a Q&A session, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? I trust they anticipated some incomprehensible piece of theology, like asking Einstein to explain reality, uh, relativity to them. Well, Barth paused for quite a long moment as he considered the question. And finally, he responded saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think Charles Spurgeon once again captured the magnitude of the greatness of God's love when he once preached. Can you imagine it? That God who is greater than immensity, whose life is longer than time, that God, the all boundless one, should love you? That he should think of you, pity you, consider you, this could be expected, but that he should love you, that his heart should go out to you, that he should choose you, that you should be the bride and Christ the bridegroom, that there should be eternal love between him and you. Oh, as you think of it, can you but lift your hands in adoring wonder and say, thy love to me is wonderful. Father in heaven, your love for us indeed is wonderful.